On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I want to rock! Hey, welcome. This is J.J. French, and you're listening to the J.J. French Connection Beyond the Music. So I do write a business column for Inc. Magazine. I, I write a Beatle column for Goldmine, and I write an audio column for Copper. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. And today, uh, I'm really excited because uh, there's, a, there's a guy that does another show for the same company that puts out this podcast, and his name is J.J. French, and his show is called The French Connection. Now, this guy's a record producer, a manager. He's done everything. You probably know him best, though, uh, as the founder of twisted sister so let me extend a welcome jj hi hey denny thanks for having me on the show so what i want to know is uh i know you're doing this podcast called the french connection and i know that it came out of if i'm not mistaken you'll correct me this came out of a you write a column for ink magazine is that where it came from well i write for a variety of magazines how it really evolved is is that one of the executives at uh, live by live Right. That owns podcast one is one of my dearest friends and okay. she knows me really well. And she would always say, you should have a podcast. You know, you, <laughs> you know, my daughter would say, dad, if they pay you for talking, you'll be the richest guy on earth. You know? So it's like these jokes that are the run, but Jackie knows I'm a very, um, she knows I have a lot of interests and that uh, I'm, I'm always inquisitive. I want to know answers. And so she always thought this would be a perfect platform for me. And uh, yes, so I do write a business column for Inc. Magazine. I, I write a Beatle column for Goldmine. And, uh, and I write an audio column for Copper. And I just had my first column in Stereophile, which is a high-end audio magazine. So it all is an offshoot. It's all kind of happened. Mm. Um, it all basically all stems from a meeting that I had with my co-writer, which but I don't want to put the cart before the horse. Like there right. is actually a reason why the whole media push started. And I'm not just the guitar player or the founder of twisted sister. That right. Now you do a lot of stuff. And we're going to cover that, but I wanted to get into a little bit about your podcast and what you're doing because most people, and I, when I first heard about it, I thought it would be giving advice to, on the business to up and coming people. And, you know, but you cover all sorts of stuff. I mean, who are some of the guests you've had on recently? Well, first of all, it, what's interesting about your, um, your statement is when I got into motivational speaking or, or the business of keynote speaking, right. When I first got into that business, I thought it was all going to be music industry. I just thought, oh, I'll be hired by, you know, ASCAP, BMI, uh, right. you know, Billboard, right. uh, do conferences. That's right. what I thought. Turned out that um, the business knowledge I possess is transferable to any business in the world because business is business is business. Right. And, and that all of a sudden I'm being hired by um, financial institutions, insurance mm. companies, right. uh, all the, you know, because they want motivational or keynote speaking to their conferences that are entertaining and frankly nothing is more entertaining 
than heavy metal stories. I mean, I kind of say that heavy metal professional wrestling and TV evangelism have the same level of credibility, but, um, <laughs> but we, you know, uh, so it turned out that, and then, then I was told, well, you got to write a book because if you're going to do all these business conferences, you need to have a book. The genesis of all of it is, is business. And so that's why it happened. However, I have a lot of friends in the industry. So when I was asked to do the podcast, they said, well, who can you get? I'm thinking right off the bat, who can I get? Well, Rob Halford from Judas Priest is a friend. So he had right. a book out. Mike Portnoy is one of the greatest drummers in the world. You know, he's right. my drummer. I'll get him. Michael Cardelloni from Leonard Skinner, Joel Hookster from Whitesnake, Phil Collin from Def Leppard. These guys I've known for a billion years. Mm-hmm. Nuno Betancourt, uh, the guitar player. You know, you start listening. First, you start with the musicians. And then you start thinking, well, you know, but I also know other people like Brian Koppelman, who created the TV show Billions. He was an A&R guy. Yeah, I mean, became a, t- a director, a producer of movies and television shows. And so he's an old friend. Um, Elliot Easton from The Cars is an old friend. Andy Babuke is an old friend. Frank Marshall, who directed the Bee Gees documentary. Right. I never met Frank, but I loved the Bee Gees documentary. And when I found out that Frank was available, I said, get me this mm-hmm. guy. And of course... Then I Wikipedia and I went, oh, my God, I'm interviewing one of the most famous guys in the history of Hollywood. I mean, his name is only attached to maybe the 50 greatest movies of all time. And he started out as a line producer on The Last Waltz, which is my all time favorite concert movie. And I love the Bee Gees documentary. So Frank Marshall and I had a great conversation. Mm. Um, I had the great Steve Vai. uh, He's on currently this week. Um, Then I get into rock management and I've interviewed Doc McGee and Shep Gordon because I'm a manager. And right. I find it fascinating. I'd love to get Mick Fleetwood because he's one of the few artist managers that exist on the planet. It's a very mm-hmm. rare to find it in one person. Hopefully right. I'll get him. I have Michael Imperioli coming up because I happen to be a huge fan of Michael Imperioli. I mean, who doesn't love the Goodfellas? Who doesn't love right. the Sopranos? And he has a band and he has an album coming out. So it's called the JJ French Connection Beyond the Music. It's chord in the music industry, of course, but it allows me, it allows me peripheral mm connections like celebrity chefs like michael lamonico jenny boyd who you may have interviewed sure i know i have not but uh, we're expecting to do her sometime in the future well, her book is great and of course i was f- totally familiar with donovan's jennifer juniper so when i when she i though i learned about her being amused for him and of, mm-hmm. of course her sister being amused for some of the biggest songs right. in the history of pop music that became important. Joe Bonamassa is on the schedule. Eddie Trunk is on the schedule. Um, my mentor, Steve Farber, is on the schedule. And Richard Syrett, who is the most off-the-wall pick of this whole bunch because he has a conspiracy radio station that when people say to me, what do you listen to? Right. I go, I re- listen to a guy named Richard Syrett. And they go, who the hell is that? And I go, he has a show called Conspiracy Radio. When I want to go to sleep at night and I want to hear the most ridiculous stories in the world that put me to sleep, I listen to this guy, Richard Syrett. And so that's why he's going to be on. And he has Beatles stories to tell amongst many others, but he has some crazy crap going on. Um, I've got uh, um, Eddie Kramer is going to be on the show. Oh, he's great. And Eddie produced our first demos. So again, and for those who don't know, Eddie Kramer, you know, Jimmy Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, some minor acts, you know, Rolling Stones. He's been producing, engineering, producing. So these are Chris Jericho. Okay, um, who's a wrestler, you know, famous wrestler and very, very popular uh, wrestler and lead singer of a band, as a matter of fact. Um, Don McLean, which was fascinating. I heard you, Don McLean. You know, I were like a kid in a candy store. You know, I mean, and then he, he warmed up. Now, you know, does that happen to you when you do somebody that like somebody who you're, I know you were infatuated with him. I could tell from the conversation. But, but I was warned, I was warned ahead of time, you know, that he can be like, don't 
ask him to explain American Pie. Right. So I specifically said, I have no intention of asking you about American <laughs> Pie, but I am going to tell you a story about why that song is important. And then right. things change. Right. And it wound up being a great interview because you need to find the source. I mean, look, you're a radio person. The worst thing in the world is to get an interview that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Believe me. Yeah. I know. But I, I, I just thought the way you handled him, you were like a fan, but you didn't let it go too far. But uh, it was just a great interview. I thought well, it was excellent. Thank you. And by the way, I'm not a radio guy or an yeah. interviewer. No. So, so this is a new world for me. I've only done 20 so far. So if someone says to me, it's not perfect, trust me, I listen back to all this stuff all the yeah. time. And I say, do I talk too fast? Do I talk too slow? Did I ask the right question? Did I repeat the same stories? Did I? It's an art form, as right. you know. And, um, and I'm learning on the job. So Okay. We're going to come back to your show and we're going to talk about your book that's coming out and everything else, but let's get to your musical career because that's what a lot of people want to know about. Now, am I correct in saying that uh, for you, uh, music started, is it uh, seeing the Weavers uh, in 62 or is it the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? Which one? Well, when I saw the the Weavers in Carnegie Hall, I was, you know, nine and it was just a fun thing to do with my parents. Right. And they loved the Weavers and the Weavers were important, but um, I don't For those I that watched. don't know, Pete Seeger was in the Weavers along with um, who was the other? Ronnie Gilbert, right. Lee Hayes, right. Fred Hellerman, if I'm right. not mistaken. Yes. Um, you know, if you were a folky in the 60s, yeah. uh, you knew who the Weavers were because mm-hmm. the Weavers and um, uh, I guess the Letterman and um, uh, Kingston all, Trio. Kingston Trio, they all preceded Dylan and Dylan right. and Woody Guthrie. And this right. is all part of that whole scene. Peter, Paul, and Mary, part of that scene as well. Um, and they were my parents were left wing Jews from New York City, and they had a particular following of, of like left leaning, politically left leaning uh, Jews for the most part. I mean, I don't know how mm-hmm. else to put it. It just is what it is. It was a cult- right. cultural kind of a thing. And I went to see him um, again. I didn't know my parents were left leaning Jews. I just was the son of uh, Evelyn and Lucy Gal, who took right. me to see the Weavers because they played right. the damn Weavers record all the time in the house, along with Harry Belafonte records and Perry right. Como for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And my father was a classical music fanatic. Um, but no, it was the proverbial Beatles on Ed Sullivan that everybody talks about. However, I will say this about that moment in time watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And this is what I'll say about it. Yes, I did say to myself, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. Okay, whatever that meant. You know, my mother was a political consultant and my father was a jewelry salesman. And the, and, the, and one of his buddies was gunned down in broad daylight and murdered in, in Florida a year before. And I thought maybe jewelry is not the business I want to be in. And then my mother was a political consultant and then Kennedy was assassinated. And I thought and she wanted me to go to Washington because she worked with a lot of politicians and knew I could get a job as a as a page for a congressman. And then when Kennedy was said assassinated, I said, that doesn't look too hmm. safe either. So the Beatles come on. I go, that's what I want to do now. If someone at that very moment, Danny, if someone had put their arm on my shoulder at that very moment, which was February 9th, 1964, as I'm watching the Beatles on TV and said to me, John, you will have a gold record as a rock star. Mm. And I go, really? In, in like three years? <laughs> and he goes, no, it'll be 20 years and six months from today. I think I would have said, screw that (laughs) are you kidding 20 years and six months i have to wait to get the gold record i'm out 
but of course, <laughs> ignorance is, is right. bliss. So I see them, uh, but in an interesting phenomenon, be, because I mentioned this to other super Beatle fanatic friends of mine, I didn't need to go out and, and play Beatle songs. That wasn't my, my thing. I, I loved them and I knew how to play guitar, but that wasn't the catalyst. The catalyst was blues. Hmm. The catalyst was at the age of 15, um, someone gave me the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Right. And I heard Mike Bloomfield's guitar playing. And so when we talk about the catalyst that lights the fire, mm-hmm. the part that ignites the passion, everyone has a ground zero. So yes, my passion for rock and roll began really with watching the Beatles on Ed, on Ed Sullivan. But my desire to play guitar was directly influenced by hearing Mike Bloomfield play lead guitar on this Paul Butterfield Blues album and not me saying, I want to do that. So did you ever see the Beatles live? Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to, and my parents wouldn't let me go. Where was that? Shea? At Shea. At Shea uh, we were living at, we were in Fire Island in the summer of 65, and our next door neighbors had tickets to see the Beatles at Shea, and they said, we'll take John. And my mother went, no. <laughs> uh, not that it would have hurt anything, but I could yeah. have said, I'm breathing the air. Yeah. I'm somehow in, in the space. Yeah. I'm watching them in real time, even though I can't hear a thing. You know, I'd be, so no, I didn't. I saw John solo several right. times i saw george solo several times mm-hmm. i saw ringo solo several times um but never saw them collectively as as the beatles where did you see john so i'm at um madison square garden oh the one-to-one twice twice he did a benefit right he, was, uh, he played with elephant's memory yeah and uh and, and i think it was one other time but at least one time i was at the garden so i think stevie wonder was on that bill as well it's mm-hmm. a pretty interesting bill you know, and so I saw him there and I saw George at a, at a wasn't Bangladesh. I don't remember where it was, but it was at a show. And then, and then Ringo, I saw all-star band several yeah. times. They played the beacon, which is up by me. So it's easy to walk over there and see that. Right. So no, I never did. But you know, when you look at the, when you look at the Mount Rushmore of rock, which I always say is the Beatlestones, who's up Floyd Queen. So I right. consider that the Mount Rushmore. Ironically, there's no American bands on that list. When we right. go into that, why I think that that America doesn't produce great rock bands, but they produce great rock individuals mm-hmm. and England produces great bands. And that's a theory that I have in my head. But if you look at the Mount Rushmore, which is the Beatles tones, who's up Floyd queen. I saw them all except the Beatles many times. Right. And they were uh, incredibly influential uh, in my development because I lived in New York city mm-hmm. and I lived down the street from the Fillmore East. So I had access to the greatest artists in the world on a right. weekly basis for three bucks. Yeah. Now, did you, um, did you ever meet McCartney, Ringo, George? I have never met them. And in my brain, I always say to myself, if I do, what would I say? Yeah, that was my next question. Because you don't, you know, <laughs> and I've thought about this over and over again, because people ask me questions and I go, wow, you know, I'm answering it again. And, and, and I don't mind it because that's what you do. Um, but you also know that certain things are on auto, autopilot. And, you know, as an interviewer, you look at people's eyes and you go, when they start to wander, you go, you know, really, you don't really want to answer this question. You know, you don't really want to, you don't really want to be here. And I don't want to be the schmuck that asked you this question. Right. either. like my friend, I wrote a story for Goldmine called The Day I Met Paul and It Didn't Go Well. And that was the name <laughs> of the story. And it's one of my best friends was working at a store in Manhattan, you know, and Paul walked in. Uh, it was like a gift shop on Broadway. And this was like when he was married to, um, uh, or uh, the, the one in between Heather Heather right so they just had a door that she was pregnant at the time right and so here's my friend who is an extremely intelligent unbelievably erudite individual and very private and very quiet and very respectful human being and 
Paul McCartney is probably one of the only two or three people on earth that he would ever really want to talk to or meet. Right. Because he's just not that kind of a guy. And, and, and Michael's so thoughtful. And he calls me up from the store and he goes, you're never going to believe what just happened. I said, why? He goes, Paul McCartney was in the store. Hmm. Mark, and he was working part time as a cashier in the store. And McCartney walked in with Heather because she saw a baby bag hanging on a hook. Right. And, and I guess wanted to buy the, the bag. You know, it was like the, the store sold um, like runoffs of extra, you know, like fancy stuff that was like on sale, whatever. So they were walking by the store on 84th and Broadway and it was really hot in the middle of summer. And he, and Michael, he looks up and there's Paul and Heather in front of him. Like if I had to think like Michael's thinking, if I ever had to think about the scenario by which I'd be meeting Paul McCartney, it wouldn't be me as a cashier in this like uh, tchotchke shop on the Upper West Side and Paul coming in and asking me how much a bag costs. Like this right. is the conversation. Right. This is the surrealness of the conversation. Paul looks at me and he goes, how much is that bag? over there. And he points to the bag with his foot, which my friend thought was kind of insulting. Like he pointed to it with his leg, you know, yeah. on a low hook. So Michael goes, it's uh, $60. And he, and he turns over the, the tag. It's not Michael's store. And he says, this is what Paul says to him. He goes, is that because of who I am? And Michael's going, this is the discussion I'm having with Paul McCartney. He's actually accusing me of gouging him for a bag. Like this is how I am meeting Paul McCartney, like he can't believe right. this is the discussion that's going on. His brain is Rolodexing, you know, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what, what do I say? What do I say? At which point a 16-year-old stock kid walks in who doesn't know Paul McCartney from a hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. And he says to the kid, bring the box of those bags from the storeroom here. Right. So the kid goes off and my friend's like looking at Paul going, those are the fingers that play the bass on Drive My Car. Those are the fingers that are playing the bass, you know, like in Day in the Life. And, and he's looking at Paul's hands and he's going, this is the guy. The kid walks in and drops the box of bags at Paul's feet. And every bag is tagged $60. So it's really $60. Right. So it wasn't my friend trying to rip Paul McCartney off. At which point, Paul realizes that maybe he was stupid in what he said. Like now he felt embarrassed that he questioned the veracity of, the, of mm -hmm. this thing. So now he starts trying to make small talk with my friend. Like, oh, the weather's kind of hot out there. And Michael's going, what? What is going on now? He's trying to keep small talk because he's embarrassed about what he said. And Michael's like going, well, it's not like it is in Liverpool. Because Michael's like forgetting the fact that like Paul hasn't been in Liverpool since Moby Dick was a minnow and he lives in the Hamptons, you know, but he doesn't know what to say because his brain is so fried. And Paul goes, I don't live in Liverpool anymore. And Michael's going, well, this is conversation is getting so stupid, at which point Heather walks over and goes, you don't need to talk to him. Just pay for the bag and let's leave. And he paid for the bag and walked out. And that was his meeting of Paul McCartney. And he said to me, you know, sometimes you'd rather not wish to meet your idols right. if it doesn't go well is the point so i don't know if meeting them would matter i know the question i would ask i do know the question i don't believe i've heard the answer to this particular question hmm. but i'll tell you what the question would be. i don't, i would say to them look everyone talks about all those years in hamburg you know and the mm -hmm. eight hours eight hours right. you guys i said well i did the band thing in bars for years for 10 years mm -hmm. i played i played like seven thousand performances i said well, i know what those days are like so i don't want to hear the eight hours i want to know what really transpired during the course of a day did you show up at three o'clock in the afternoon play 30 minutes take a break come back like i never knew the specifics of what you did i want to know how that really went down i also want to know the first original song you played were you terrified 
that you were playing that song? Were you afraid that people are going to go, who was, who is that? Were you afraid the club owner is going to go, I didn't hire you to play original songs. I hired you to play Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly songs. You know, did you debate this in the dressing room? Were you in fear of the reaction to the original? I don't know if anyone's ever asked them these questions. Those are the questions I would like to know, because those are the questions that we asked ourselves. Well, I was just going to say, did anybody ask you those questions? No one's ever asked me those questions. No one's ever asked me those questions. All right. Well, what was it like? You slugged it out. I think you said 9,000 shows. You slugged it out in the bars for years. What was that like? You know, you were doing covers of what? Zeppelin and, and, right? Yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, the phrase wash, rinse, repeat. Yes. You get into the cycle, right? So in the early days, you know, you talk about the early days of radio and how formative yeah. it was and how, uh, how like, in the woods it all was because the rules were. So in the early days of Twisted, which was 73, mm-hmm. most of the bars were owned by former, like, mob, like lower-level mob guys who right. inherited these bars from, you know, either from their family mm-hmm. or you know these bars have been around forever because in the 40s and 50s they had Sinatra and Bennett and all these other kinds of guys. And these are just, right. you know, they got to they deal with rock and roll now right and they don't really give a shit you know they're smoking cigars yeah keep it down it's too loud people can't talk at the bar you're dealing with those kinds of guys and i remember when i ent- when i joined the band i uh i said to the guys who formed the band i was the last original member to join the band i said do you guys play bars on a regular basis and they go yeah and i said like like mob bars and they go yeah and i go like what do you deal with like you got to deal with frankie the shoe and billy the knife and all that stuff and they go well one day you know the club owners always telling us you're too loud you're too loud you're too loud turned down and one time they brought a guy into the bar and you knew they were going to beat him up in the back and the club owner said hey listen guys for the next 15 minutes you just can play as loud as you want like really let it go because they were taking some guy out the back tour like i don't know kill the guy for all i know you know so they said it was the only time so in those days here's what you did you played six nights a week Mm -hmm. shows a night in the same location right so you park your truck on a tuesday you set up and you play at 9 10 11 12 1 you end at 120 at 140 every night 40 on 20 off on our weekends you did a you had show bands Mm-hmm. So you had Little Anthony and the Imperials or the Coasters, all this kind of stuff, because that was still the era these guys hired. Right. And then they did their show from midnight to 1.30, which means your five sets extend to 4.40 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So on weekends, you play till 4.40, right? So you get this is how this worked night after night after night, year after year after year. So as time eventually went on and we became more successful we could go from five sets a night to four sets a night to three sets a night, two sets a night to one set. But that was the evolution over the course of 10 years. So when people say to me, how did you handle it? I would say ignorance is bliss. You didn't know you had another five years ahead of you. You didn't know the grind was going to be so predictable, but the grind became so predictable. There was a stretch of about four years that, that was, here's what it was. It was now Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so it's four or five nights. You get to the club, you leave for the club at three in the afternoon, you get there at five or six, you do a sound check. By seven, the doors open, you hang out in the dressing room until 1030. You do your first show at 1030. And you do three one hours or four 45s. You get home at six o'clock in the morning and you go to sleep at six and you wake up at two in the afternoon, you take a shower, you get in the car and you do the same thing. Mm. 
and you do this over and over and over and over and over again. And on the days off, you rehearse. And one day a week was left for personal space. So what does this do? This focuses you to be great, but it also destroys your personal life. There is no personal life because you're dedicating your life to a goal to become, you know, famous and, and a rock star. And in those days, drinking age was 18. So that meant there were 15-year-old kids getting into the bars with fake proof, which means the bars were huge, which was great. Hmm. Gas truly was a dollar a gallon or less. Um, uh, house rentals were three to $400 a month. You know, you could get, you could easily do this. The economics of scale worked perfectly. You know, today you don't have that. And also there was a thriving record industry, right? So hmm. all these things existed in our day that did not exist Today, drinking age is 21, gasoline is $4 a gallon, house rentals are $5,000 a month. You're still getting paid the same $150. That's if you're lucky and you get paid. So it is a, it is a, I wrote, wrote an article in Inc. magazine called The Boredom of Excellence. What is the boredom of excellence? What is that cliche, Danny, that says if you do the same thing over and over expecting a different result, you know, that's the definition of insanity. I say that's the definition of greatness. Because if you think about it, if you're great at anything, it's because you've done it a billion freaking times. People do not become gold medal Olympic skiers unless they're up at four o'clock in the morning skiing every day for years. Correct? Well, that's the Malcolm Gladwell theory, the 10,000 10, hours. Yes. You don't become you, Denny, right. without that's, thousands but of that's, hours. But that's what the Beatles did. They played 10,000 hours in Hamburg. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the point. People don't ask them enough about it. And I want to know the minutia. I, I share the minutia with it, with people. They say to me, what was a night really like? You know, what did you really have to right. do with? I really want to know the dirt in there. I just need to know the real mechanics. You didn't play eight hours straight. Stop the bullshit. You didn't play eight hours straight. You know, what did you play? 40 minutes on, you know, then you, you took some time off. And how many hours did you really play during the course of a night? That's really what I want. Did you ever ask those questions? Do you know the answer to those questions? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. And and this is somebody you should have on if you haven't. And I know you'll probably go, oh man, I'd love to have him on. The best analysis of the Beatles in Hamburg I got when I asked Eric Burden about the Beatles. And he said to me, you know, the Beatles, all that crap you read. Let me tell you what made the Beatles. What made the Beatles was playing in Hamburg, playing eight shows a night seven days a week living in the vans taking poppers and pills and the girls and the beer and that's what made the Beatles. well so you should sounds, talk to him it sounds good i just wonder if it's too much romanticism because i could say the same thing about me and get away with it there's no one's alive to tell the well truth. i figured he'd been to hamburg and the animals did well, the same thing so sure he if he doesn't know nobody does I don't. true but again, eight shows a day. Okay, I just want to know. Is it yeah, really no, eight I, shows I, a day? I'm exaggerating. I know what you Yeah, mean. and that's my point. My point is because I've been there and done that. Okay, wait a minute. Because this to. is where I want to get you here. Yeah. You had a, a different experience. You you didn't get any, nobody would sign you in America. You had to go over to Britain. What happened? What, what was the situation there? Well, How did we that got, come about? We got so big in America and we got turned down so many times that the joke was nobody wants to sign you because nobody wants to sign you. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of this propagation of uh, myth where you must suck if no one's signing you. So tell me how frustrating you think it would be if you could play four nights a week in the tri-state area within a 50-mile radius of Manhattan Mm -hmm. in clubs that held up to 5,000 people, sell out every single night, every night, year after year after year after year. And all the record company does is say, oh, well, obviously you don't have a following. 
uh, excuse me, we're selling out bigger venues than your album artists are selling mm-hmm. out. Well, you haven't been signed to now, which must mean you're not worth signing. So the rejection slips built up. And in my book, which is uh, called Twisted Business, um, my life lessons in rock and roll, the first page says we were turned down more times in a bedsheet in a whorehouse and come back more times than Freddy Krueger. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, that happens to be a, applicable to almost any entrepreneur in the world, almost any business. You know, you keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So we, you know, we, we record these demos with Eddie Kramer. Right. And we, and we figured Eddie Kramer. Eddie Kramer, right. you know, we're definitely going to get a record deal now. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, and it was so weird, too, because Eddie coming down to see us is such a typical Twisted Sister story. Uh, I'll tell you the story because it's kind of interesting. I don't even yeah. know that Eddie remembers it. So we're playing at a club in Portchester, New York called Detroit. It was not in Detroit. It was in Portchester. It was just called Detroit. <laughs> in fact, amongst our less literal friends, they call it Detroit's. I seen you at Detroit's. It's going to be on my gravestone i think i seen you at detroit so we're playing at this club called detroit and um it's a big room and it's a weekend night and a girl shows up early at soundcheck and goes by the way i want you to know this guy eddie kramer is coming down to see you i'm like what do you know why would you say that how do you even know where's eddie kramer is he in england like eddie kramer eddie kramer what eddie kramer she goes yeah he's a big famous record guy he's coming to see it and i go how do you know he's coming to see us well my mother works at a bank she's a teller and he is a he 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 goes to that bank and my mother was talking to him today and said what are you doing he goes i'm gonna go see a band tonight called twisted sister and she told me i'm telling you that's how we find out okay Okay. So I go in the dressing room. I go, guys, Eddie Kramer is coming down. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? We've been through the ringer. We've been turned down a zillion times already. And, you know, it's fairly plausible. And, like, I, I didn't make it up. The girl told me. I said, but it doesn't matter. And the, here's the reason why it doesn't matter. We put on the same show every night, meaning same intensity, same performance. doesn't really matter. So mm. if Eddie Kramer's there, great. If he's not there, it's not going to make us play any better because the band's super tight. You know what we're doing. And it was during the gas crisis of 1979. For those people who don't know what that is, we went through two bad gas crises in the, in the history of the band, 73 and 79. In 73, there was a, a, a there was almost, you, you couldn't get gas unless you had the right yeah. license plate number on the right day, and no gas was available on <laughs> a Sunday. wait in line. And you had to wait in line. You could only buy $5 worth of gas. And that was in 73. And in 79, it wasn't much better than that. And we were playing in the summer of 79 and we were being affected by the gas crisis because this club Detroit was located between two major highways. Well, guess what you need when you're located between two major highways, you need a car. So it was raining and there was, and there was a gas crisis and maybe there was 50, 60 people in the room. Eddie Kramer shows up and you know, we do the show and he comes back and Oh my God. And we sign a deal with Eddie Kramer. Okay, Hmm. so we record these demos at Electric Lady Studios. That's Jimi Hendrix's studio, which has just been rebuilt downtown. Uh, Have you ever been? You have. Yes. uh, Yes, you've been. So, you know, on A A Street. Okay, so it had just reopened. It was bought by a new guy who just reopened Mm -hmm. it. And and they said to Eddie, do you have an act that you'd like to, you know, practice the the new gear on? Mm -hmm. I got a group, you know, they'll do it. So we go and do a deal. 
and uh, we do the, the demos and for a year Eddie shops them and he goes I can't believe no one will sign you like he can't believe no one will sign us and we can't believe no one will sign us but we figure we're not ever going to get signed if we can't get a deal with Eddie Kramer's demos we're never going to get a deal right, right? somehow we decide um, that we're going to release these uh, the tapes we made as singles so that we could tell people we had a record deal because we didn't have sure. a record deal so you want to tell people you have a record you got to show forward momentum right so we go print out on little Twisted Sister Records two singles in 78 and 79, 245s. And um, the printing company in Queens, oh, those guys were fans of the band. Queens Lithos? No, I don't actually do not remember the name. That's the name of the company, Queens Lithos. In 1979. So they printed out these singles. Yeah. And then I guess what they did was they shipped them. (laughs) They thought they were doing us a favor, you know, so they, I said, uh, imports, exports, they sent some to England. Mm. And the summer of 80, some girl walks up to me and goes, or 81, she goes, you're on the top of a chart in the British paper. I go, top of the chart in a British paper. She pulls out a copy of Sounds Magazine, which is a rock paper right. in England. And, and in the, you know, it, it's, it sounds so provincial and so archaic, but like the writers had their own personal hit list, you know, because mm-hmm. it's kind of hip, you know. So they're all heavy metal fans. You know, this is 80, 81. So one of the guys, Malcolm Dome or Dante Benuto or Jeff Barton, one of the editors had, uh, you know, the top 20 singles, Tigers of Pantang, Motorhead, Iron Maiden, just come out of their first record. And number one on this chart was Under the Blade, Twisted Sister. I said, what? The, the, the idea that we were number one on any chart anywhere in the world that was not part of the New York tri-state area that we've been stuck in, you know, for 10 years was Unbelievable. So the the guy from Sounds Magazine tells this to a writer named Gary Bushel, who is a very influential rock writer in England. And Gary tells the editor, I want to fly to New York and see this band. So mm-hmm. Gary flies over and sees us at D- Detroit. Coincidentally, we're playing there that night. And he writes a big article in Sounds called Sister Sledgehammer. And it gets seen by this record company called secret records the record company president calls on mm-hmm. gary bushel and gary says they're amazing they're like a punk band and this guy is a punk label with the exploited and the cockney reject so it's really a punk right. label you know what oi bands are the yeah. phrase oi 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 so they're all oi bands right so he um you might want to explain that though for our audience okay so <laughs> so people go yo in this country when they want to call you they go yo hey yo come over here in england they go oi Oi. And, and that's how Cockneys get your attention. They go, Oi, mate. Oi. Oi. And amongst the, amongst, I guess, the, um, the more um, aggressive Cockney football fans, because, you know, they're really insane over there, you know, they go, Oi, 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 Oi. So bands who they love, they're called nicknamed Oi bands for better or worse. And it was a right. small period of time, but that's the context by Oi bands, right? So, the guy, the, the manager, the owner of the record label contacts our manager at the time and says, I want to come over. I, I think I want to sign the band. And we've been turned down so much. And, and you know, here's our attitude. He ain't going to make it. He's going he's gonna to die. I mean, it's not in the cards. We're definitely never going to get signed. And so the guy picks a date, tells us it's flying over. And uh, he gives us this date. And the date is a night that we're playing at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in, in Poughkeepsie. And uh, this is our attitude. Well, the show probably won't sell out, but if it does sell out and he actually 
gets on a plane, the plane will blow up on the way to the United States for an IRA bomb. But if the plane doesn't blow up, he'll die in a car crash on the way up to the Mid-Hudson Civic Center. But if he gets there, the lighting rig will fall on us. This is how we're, we're looking at the whole scene. So the guy comes, sees the band, band's great, walks in the dressing room, I'm going to sign you. No reaction to the band. Walks out going, I just told them I'm going to sign them. How come no reaction? He says, well, you got to understand they've been through a lot. So he leaves and I go, 100 bucks says he dies in a car crash on the way back to Kennedy. 200 bucks says he dies in a plane crash on the way back to England. Well, he gets to Kennedy, gets back to England. But there's a snowstorm about a month later that destroys his office, like the worst snowstorm in 100 years. And his office is completely wiped out. So we figure that's, yeah, that's, that's it. It's never going to happen. However, he does negotiate the deal. And my lawyer calls me and says, guess what? The deal's done and we negotiated it and you should pick it up at Kennedy airport and sign it. So I go to Kennedy airport to the cargo area, Kennedy airport. I pick up a package. It's the record deal. Now this is it. This is the record deal. Like this real thing. This is the freaking record deal. And, uh, we're between drummers. So it's just basically me, D Mendoza and, and Eddie. And we all meet in front of Eddie's house in Queens. And it's, and it's, uh, it's April 5th or 6th. Whatever. And, uh, and this is what year again? This is 80, this is 82. Now. 82. Yeah. So we pull out the record deal and we're looking at it. It's our name, secret records. And we signed. And I had a copy of the daily news with me. And after he finished signing, I opened up the Daily News, and the headline is, England goes to war in the Falkland Islands. And I said, Jesus Christ, there's going to be no natural resources to make our record. They're going to use it all to make bullets and bombs for this war in the Falkland Islands. So I thought for sure the war was going to completely destroy this independent record label. Well, the bottom line is the war doesn't destroy England. We go to England, we record the album, and um, we come back to New York finally after years of struggle and go, hey, guess what? We're going to go on tour in England. This record's coming out Labor Day weekend. And we finally, finally, after years and years of toil, finally made it. And um, the day before we were to fly to England, my lawyer calls. And he said, he's sitting down. I said, why? He said, the label released the record and went bankrupt. So the tour is <laughs> off and there's no album. Um, so Denny, at this point in time, if I was a drug user, I would probably, or if I was suicidal, I probably would have just, you know, done something stupid because how much can you stand? I mean, how much rejection can you actually stand? So when you ask me how it all went down, it basically went down that way. And what happened ultimately was we, we, as, as I tell the story in my book, Mm-hmm. I talk about how to deal with rejection in my book. I say there's four stages to rejection. One is you mourn the rejection. The second is you um, reflect on the rejection. The third is you retool and you re- and then the fourth is you reapply. That's if you want to come back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, you mourn, you reflect, you retool, re- you reapply. All of these lessons happened organically. It didn't happen with a book. It didn't happen because we knew what we were doing. This is just how we constantly absorbed rejection. We, we got rejected. We thought about why we got rejected. We took from the rejection what we thought could be applicable that we could deal with that may be constructive or not. We retooled to 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 reflect this change, hmm. and then we reapplied it, and we would go forward. And this is 
process. So we reflected, we retooled, and we decided we would give it one more shot and go back to England and maybe we'd do a TV show. Now we, it's well known, our documentary, we are Twisted Fucking Sisters, the documentary. Right. We, uh, we go back, we borrow $22,000 from various people. We go back and um, we, uh, we get signed to Atlantic Records on the basis of a television performance. That, by the way, was as important to us as the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. Just meaning that this was the Hail Mary for us in England. Eight million people were watching this TV show. We put on the performance of our lives, and we get signed to it. Okay, yeah, but then then uh, Atlantic puts the record out here, and it, you can't get it played anywhere. No, because well, you think it's nineteen. 1980- Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Yeah, because I'm one of those guys in the radio programming guy that used to get those calls from Phil Carson. Why aren't you playing this band I just signed in England? He had to beat people over the head before it happened, right? And your response was, uh, I'll listen to it. And we eventually played it. So that was Can't Stop Rock and Roll. That was that album. So what yeah. happened was that album comes out. We had a hit in England. We had two hits. Can't, we had, we had uh, Kids Are Back and I Am My Me. So we're on the cover of magazines in England. Now we're stars. Like, oh, my God, we're on Top of the Pops. I mean, come on. How influential is Top of the Pops? I mean, right. Jonathan Peel. All, the, all those guys, you know, they're all interviewing us and we're on the D's, you know, on the cover. Of these By the way, just so you know, getting a call to ask to play a record from Phil Carson is pretty big because he was working with Zeppelin and Yes and AC/DC. Twisted Sister. Come on. Yeah, ACDC. <laughs> and he signed ACDC. That's right. Yeah. Yes, he was Zeppelin's tour manager. Right. At for years and mm-hmm. then eventually managed Robert and Jimmy separately right. and with the mm-hmm. firm. Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, yeah, Phil loved Twisted, but but he couldn't get America to care. Couldn't get arrested. Couldn't, couldn't get arrested. So the record comes out and we we could we were scrambling for a tour and nobody wanted to go on tour with us. And we had no tour support. And we finally got a tour with Crocus and Blackfoot. Now, for those of you who want a little history, uh, you know who Blackfoot is, of sure. course. Do you know that Blackfoot and Twisted Sister had the same agent back in 1973? Yeah, Lou Manganiello. Blackfoot moved to uh, to New Jersey from mm. Gainesville, Florida, I believe they were originally yeah, from. Right. Yeah. And one guy was in Leonard Skinner, and yeah, the other guy yeah, Ricky still. Ricky Medlock, who yeah. was yeah, Ricky was from Leonard Skinner in the Blackfoot. Bass player, I can't remember. He still runs the band, I think today. Um. Oh, in Blackfoot, you're talking yeah. about Greg, probably Greg. Yeah, I think player, that's his right? name. Still, yeah. still alive. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Blackfoot, so so we knew Blackfoot really well. So, and Crocus, we didn't get along with it all. Um, they were really, they were fucked up. And they gave us a 29-minute opening set, and we traveled the United States basically opening for Blackfoot and Crocus, 29-minute set. Right. If you go over one minute, your plug is going to be pulled. That's what we were told by Crocus. One minute, over. So we had to play like six or seven songs, make sure. Why was Crocus difficult to get along, along with? Uh, I had to do with a personal problem between Dee's wife, who was d- designing clothes for them. And then somehow things fell apart and they got really rude with her. And it got really ugly between the two of the bands. And we've never really, I don't know if Dee ever made up with the guys. So the bottom line is we couldn't get arrested. And we toured the country and rent a cars. And a year after we were signed to Atlantic, without the help of anyone in Atlantic in the U.S., the president of Atlantic, Doug Morris, famously, as I tell the story, um, basically apologized for his attitude with the band, said he was mistaken. And he said, you guys, with no money spent, sold 100,000 records with no tour support, with nothing. He said, imagine what's going to happen 
if I put money behind you? And then he said, you, you know about this thing called MTV. I mean, talk about the early days. <laughs> that was my next, I was just getting that. They really exploded. He goes, he goes, you know about this thing called MTV? I said, yeah, I know about it because they had started playing because they needed material. They needed stuff on MTV back in 82, 83. Right. They didn't have enough That's stuff. Right. So, you know, they were playing, you can't stop rock and roll a little bit, but um, he says, you know who owns MTV? I said, no, he goes, we do. I said, you meaning who? He goes, Warner Music owns it with American Express. It's a true story. Mm-hmm. They co-owned it, which meant they could pretty much put whatever the hell they want. You know how that works. You, know, you own yeah. the station, you have political clout. So he said, you make the right record and you make the right videos. I'll make you one of the biggest bands in the world, which he said to me, which sounds like bullshit. Right. A record company president not known for, he was a fairly disingenuous human being, not known for touchy-feely, says to you, you make the right record and, and I'll make you the biggest band in the world. And I remember this was Christmas week, 83, having dinner with my brother that night. And I told him the story. He goes, that's great news. After all these years, the president of Atlantic has told you he's going to make you the biggest band in the world. And I looked at my brother. And I said, he's so full of shit. Jeff. This is the difference between you and me. I'm a street guy. I know a con when I, <laughs> that's what I say to him. There's no way. Well, we did. And the rest is history. And if I didn't do Stay Hungry, I wouldn't be here talking to you, basically. You know, that that record created two of the most popular licensed songs in the history of the music industry. You know, We're Not Going to Take It I Want to Rock are the two most licensed songs in all right. heavy metal. Right. You were in a Super Bowl ad recently, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, among hundreds. That must be a thrill. Tom Tricks Nasal Spray was the first company to license. Mm-hmm. We're not going to take it in 1999. And, um, and since then, it's been thousands of licenses for TV shows, commercials. I mean, people right. joke, joke about the fact that it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it is everywhere. And, and it's everywhere because, A, the songs are great. Right. And, B, because, in general, advertisers like to know what they know. know they use what they're familiar with, right. which is why most people may think it's the same 10 songs that get used for everything. But the reason why is the more they get used, the more people want to use them. And that's just the way the world yeah, is. Right. That's why most medical, uh, most drug companies use I Feel Good by James Brown, because everybody knows that song. I mean, if you think about it, there's a new drug, the Falabalab drug. I feel good. Da, 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 da. There's a million songs with doctor. No one's using it. Doctor, doctor, give me the mood. Nobody's using it. And my joke is, is that we're not going to take it. And I Feel Good by James Brown are back to back all the time. And I always say it as a joke. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting at my desk now, I'm doing some paperwork, and I hear we're not going to take it. And I look around, and it's to promote a Disney TV show, right? So I go, I go oh, that's cute. You know, it's another another license, you know? And I go back, and then I hear, I feel good. And I turn around, and it's for KFC. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But why do you think Don't Stop, you know, like Fleetwood Mac, or Don't Stop Believing by Journey? These songs are used all the time. And they get used all the time because people are familiar with them and they love the songs. Right. And, and those two songs uh, exemplify the 80s for people. And they came from the same record. So I just want to get back to one of your big influences is, of course, Led Zeppelin. Yes. Correct? Yes. Did you do Zeppelin songs in your set? You did. We had to. Uh, we hired Dean to sing Zeppelin songs. Right. Uh, you know, I, I now, now, by the way. You know that this show is basically me grilling people like you, and then I bring people from the past back. So this is your life, okay? Yeah. So 2009, 
your guest on one of my shows. You ready? Led Zeppelin is definitely a significant band to everybody in Twisted Sister. Uh, very much an inspiration. I originally got into the band by singing Led Zeppelin covers. I think that was, Jay, that was the thing that really sold you guys on me is when I, when I blasted out Communication Breakdown. Well, that's because because I was doing the lead singing at the time, and my voice is somewhere between um, a, to- a trash compactor and Tom Carvel. And my agent said, if, if you want to make any money, you got to do Zeppelin and call this guy. Call now, this Guy, yeah, well, good. I saved me from going through all that. It was a, it was a anyway, that's what we do. We 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 try and uh, you you talk about something, and then I back it up. It was a magical time. D sang Zeppelin perfectly. Although there was a Zeppelin, there Zeppelin was the staple of copy bands back right. in those days. The Doors were mm-hmm. Zeppelin was Southern rock bands were, right. um, and there were bands that specialized in Zeppelin, like Zebra and Rat Race Choir, that sounded way better than Zepp Live. Right. Incidentally, most people do not understand that Zeppelin deteriorated greatly after 1975. By 77, on their last tour, they were fairly unlistenable, and we couldn't give tickets away to Zepp shows. Think about that for a second. We had a ticket friend, a guy who sold t- concert tickets. His nickname was Jimmy Tickets, as we called him. You know, he was a street guy, Jimmy Tickets. <laughs> I don't think that was his given name, was Jimmy Tickets. But he said he had tickets to see Zepp at the Garden. And he said, I'll give you four tickets. You'd give them away, you know, for like a, a, a club promotion. I right. couldn't give them away because everyone said, oh, man, I'd rather go see, Z- I'd rather see Zebra or Rat Race because these cover bands spent more time honoring the acts than the acts did. You know, people don't understand. They find that hard to believe, but that's how it was. So I couldn't give them away. So I went, all right, I'm going to go see them. And they were terrible, except that John Bonham was great. And right. I watched Bonham play drums for three hours and he was phenomenal. And I've seen Robert a bunch of times and we had dinner together and Robert, I saw him and Alison Krauss. I thought they were spectacular, by the way. But mm. I did see Zeppelin many, many times in 69, 70, 71, 72. I saw them a lot and they were one of the greatest, at that point, one of the greatest acts in the world. I would say Zeppelin Live, 70, 69 to 73 and the Rolling Stones Live, 69 to 72 were two of the greatest rock acts you could ever see. Live. Okay. I want to ask you a couple more music things, and then I want to talk about your your book okay. that's coming out. So first of all, I think it's generally known that you originally uh, auditioned for Wicked Lester, which is an early version of Kiss. Can you tell us what happened? It was a short thing. I only was involved in them for a very short period of time. Um, I was babysitting for a guy in my building who was a lawyer, and his he represented Ron Johnson, who produced the Wicked Lester demos. Right. And he and I would open my window in my apartment and blast my guitar out. And he goes, you play guitar a lot. I hear it on the street, you know. And I said, yeah. And he goes, um, you're looking for a band? I said, yeah, I actually am looking for a band. And he goes, well, I know a band. So I'll hook you up with a band. So he hooked me up with Gene. And I called him up and he goes, we have a band. It's called Wicked Lester. And um, we're transitioning to a different kind of music. And I said, like what? He goes, well, we sound like Looking Glass. You know, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good, like, we're, we're transitioning from that. Right. Heavy. He goes, are you into Slade? I hadn't heard of Slade yet. Because we well, should, because we're into, like, it's going to be heavy. Right. And I, I, I played with them for a couple of weeks. You know, and I always make a point of saying I never was into anything. I was, in a, I was one of many right. guitar players that traveled through their world. You but know, you've since uh, seen those guys, and do they remember it? I've never asked them. Okay. 
I've never, you know, I mean, I've never actually, I've never actually asked any of them if they remember. I mean, the irony, the crazy part is forgetting, forgetting the fact that for two weeks I was, or, you know, I played with them on and off and, you know, they maybe had many other guitar players doing it for all I know. Yeah. But the day that they played Kissified songs for the very first time for anybody was for Ron Johnson at the loft on 23rd street. And they invited me down. So it was just me and Ron Johnson and a friend right. of mine brought with me named Tommy Jahelka. And we sat in the loft and all those songs that were on the wicked Lester record were now kissified mm-hmm. with Marshall amplifiers. And I could see where this was going. You know, the dolls were playing at the time and I thought the dolls were terrible, awful, just beyond awful. And, and kiss represented what I thought would be the future because they were, it was real. It was solid. It was blues based, heavy rock music with mm-hmm. Marshall amplifiers. And the dolls were doing this kind of like watered down stonesy drunk kind of shtick. Right. And I didn't, you know, people talk about the re- reverence about them. I talked with no reverence. They were awful. They were mm-hmm. all, and I saw them a million times and they were, they were good once they were really good ones, which I felt better about because I thought I was wasting so much of my life. Mm. But it, that to me was not g- glorious rock and roll. It was just a bunch of drug addict dirtbags from Central Park who I kind of knew. They looked great, but they were not particularly good. And um, and Gene and Paul apparently felt the same way because I heard recently in an interview, they, they went to see the dolls at commercial arts like I did and walked out and went, what are you talking about? Now, I got to be, let's be fair about this. We all were looking at it as peers trying to say, are we better than they are as a band? You know, bands need to understand. People need to understand this. I wasn't critically analyzing them as a critic would to talk about, you know, the connection to the Velvet Underground and they're somehow, you know, over-intellectualized what they meant. You know, the raunch epistemology of Spider-Turner and the New York Dolls, which is what Crawdaddy Magazine, which would write, you know, some sort of like overblown uh, Richard Meltzer, Dave Marsh would give you this like super mm. ultra intellectual view of it. I'm just a musician going, they can't play. They, their songs are bad. They're singing flat. Like, what's yeah. the deal? That's all I'm doing. I'm analyzing. Mm. Apparently, I think Gene and Paul must have felt the same way. Do I respect what they did? I, I knew Syl. I interviewed Syl for a cable show many years later. Um, they, they certainly had, they certainly, by the way, they influenced Twisted Sister. Let's be quite fair about the dolls. Hmm. Twisted Sister started out as a Jersey version of the dolls. We were hoping to be a better version of it, but they inspired the creation of Twisted Sister. So I'm not going to ever deny it. But if you say to me, look at the dolls and look at Kiss at the same time, which I had the luxury of doing, I would have said, wow, Kiss really has the vision to take it someplace. I didn't see that in the dolls. And then there they selected Ace and Ace turned out to be the perfect guitar player. I recently, I said to Eddie Trunk, I said, Eddie, this is how I feel about Ace. He may not be the most technically great guitar player in the world, but if you ask me the three most influential American rock guitar players, in other words, people that influence more people to become rock stars, mm-hmm. Van Halen, Hendrix and Ace Frehley are probably equal uh, in terms of their inspiration to making people want to be stars. Though it's not that Ace could 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 technically go head to head with Hendrix and and with Van Halen, but if you tell me that you don't agree that his influence, how many people saw Kiss and loved Ace? I'd say it's crazy. Mm. He had a huge influence. He's kind of like the Keith Richards of American metal. You know, Keith is not Jeff Beck. You know, he's not, but he's Keith. All right, let me ask you, greatest. Twisted Sister show of all time. 
the weirdest answer you're going to get from me. Um, first of all, people say to me, what's the greatest moment was the sister life. You know, the, the platinum albums, the big shows, hundred thousand people. And I say, mm-hmm. Probably being selected as Blackwell's worst dressed women's list in 1987 is probably my favorite Twisted Sister moment. You know, he described us as looking like a car crash in a whorehouse. I just thought that was very funny. You know, <laughs> uh, and yes, we've done thousands of shows, and yes, we've played to hundreds of thousands of people, and the big shows are fun. Uh, but there was one show we played one night at a club called Speaks in 1979, August last weekend of '79, and it was inspired by. Um, Dick Clark's 25th anniversary of rock and roll was running on, on ABC that night. And I brought a television to the, to the dressing room because I was, I wanted to watch the special and it was two hours of the greatest performances in rock and roll. And remember this is 79 now, right? right. No so VCRs. So, so, right. So it starts out with, with, uh, you know, with Elvis and Chuck Berry and it, and it ends and it's two hours of unbelievable live performances, like by the greatest, 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 greatest. And if you're watching it in a rock fan and you're like, hyping it up and it ends with Springsteen doing Rosalita at the bottom line, you know, and that's super famous, super famous. Yeah. Springsteen. Oh my God. We walked out on stage to play the first set that night and something happened. And it was like, the place went crazy. It was like there was blood on the walls. We finished the set. A friend of mine walked up to me and said, what the hell just happened? And I said, the justification for everything I've ever wanted to do was just made that show. In other words, all the dropping out of school, all the risks, everything that I could possibly have put up as a roadblock, that was the greatest justification. Now, reading the Bob Spitz book about the Beatles, and it says, when did Beatlemania start? Like, which was the night that the screaming started? That's really what we wanted to find out in his book. And he describes the night at the cavern that the screaming started. Because I wanted to know what lit the fire, you know. In my brain, that night for me, justified all the risks I took. I've asked the guys in the band, if they remember. Mark does, and he thought it was a really good, but Dee has no particular recollection. Neither does Eddie. For me, it was. Um, putting that aside, playing South America and as big as the festivals are in Europe, South American fans are so emotional, Mm -hmm. so religiously tied into the bands at a level that is almost, that is impossible to describe unless you actually go there and see the religious fervor by which they express their love for the band. So whether it's Mexico, which is our number one Spotify country, for example, or whether it's Brazil uh, or, or Chile or Bolivia, but when we played Argentina, uh, I never saw a reaction like that in my life. And that was only 10 years ago. Hmm. And it was like, if I ever wanted to feel Beatlemania, and I'm thinking to myself, we're like 60-year-old guys. You know, this isn't like 20-year-old kids with with 14-year-old girls screaming in the audience, which is what you equate with mania. Right. This was, these were teenage, you know, guys for the most part, 17 to 21 maybe. And... Uh, I'll never forget it. I mean, I, I've spoken about it many, many times. I'll never forget it. The religious fervor by which they express their love. By the way, for Kiss, Aris, uh, Kiss, Aerosmith, uh, Zeppelin, or rather, mm-hmm. uh, Judas Priest, ACDC, Motley Crue, they, mm-hmm. they love this era. They love right. it, love it, love it. And, 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 and let's be honest, heavy metal was derided for years, especially 80s metal. Ah, oh, you know, it sucks. Critics, critics 
blow us off. If it's so bad, why is why does it have the ability to still sell out probably more tickets than any other music internationally? Right. It does because it means so much to so many people, and I'm grateful for it. I don't necessarily understand why, but I don't necessarily need to care why. The fact is that it does. Tell me about the book you have coming out. Twisted Business. So it's a bizwar. What's a bizwar? What is a bizwar? Well, is a it's a memoir and a business book. And if you think about most business books, or most, most business books about guys who became successful businessmen are memoirs and business books because it's your experiences in life that made you what you are. You can't divorce the two. So when people kept saying to me, you're going to write a book? What's going to be about? About my life. Well, it's going to be about Twisted? Yeah. Well, it's going to be about your life in Twisted? Yeah. Well, what do you do in Twisted? You manage the band. So it's a biz war. It's a combination. And mm. it was inspired by my friendship with Steve Farber, my co-writer, who is a famous author and keynote speaker who got me into the keynote speaking business. And so we decided to sit down one day and I said, you know, for all the stories I tell, may as well finally immortalize them, at least yeah. before I can, before I forget them. So, and, and the book comes out when? It's September 21st, I believe. And you'll be doing the, Rosetta. the I'll circuit? Doing, I'll be doing the circuit. Yeah, either virtually or personally, depending on what the nature of the world is at, right. at that point. But right. I'm excited to have the book come out. I'm excited to have it out finally as a statement. And I'm excited about the podcast. And I'm excited about writing the columns. And I'm excited about this chapter because people say to me, are you going to put the band back together? Is the band going to reform? I hmm. said, the band reformed. We did it already. We came right. back for 14 years. I don't have a desire to do it again. doesn't mean it will never happen again because we get along fine. Mm -hmm. And the first time we split it, we didn't get along. Right. So if you were to ask me if the band was going to get back together, hmm. you know, the perfect story of that is that I was walking down the street one day in, this, in, the, in, in, in 1995 and some fan goes, hey, JJ, when are you guys getting back together? It's not happening. Oh, fuck that, man. When you come on, everyone's got a number. No, no, we, there's no number. Bullshit. Everybody's got a number. What's your number? And I look at the guy. I said, let me ask you something, man. I said, you ever been married? Yeah. I said, how much would it take for you and your ex-wife to travel on a bus together for a month? He goes, you couldn't fucking pay me enough. I, <laughs> <laughs> I went, okay. End of story. JJ, thank you again for being a guest. Thank good luck with your, with your podcast. Thank you. And good luck to you on yours. Okay. Thanks. Okay, buddy. Take care. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. 
From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.